See who Jesus is and that he is more clear to us. We want to see the real Jesus, not just what we assume we know, think we've heard before, assume that we've got it all figured out. We want to see him clearly for who he really is. And Mark's message, in part, talks about how Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is now here. If you look back in chapter 1, Daniel talked about this last week. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Mark's message. In the book, we can learn and see our deepest need, knowing Jesus. And then we can apply from that how to follow Jesus. So I would just encourage you, maybe you think, I've, I've read these verses before, I've read Mark before, I've been in this book. Come to it with a, a new desire to grow and learn. So before we start, why don't we pray? God, in these few moments we have together, I pray you would help us to clearly see who your son Jesus is. Would it jump off the page to us? Would we just be overwhelmed by how amazing he is? So God, help us to focus in these next few minutes to listen and to, to be filled with your spirit who enables these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to go to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to go all the way to 45. So I hope you're comfortable. Okay? I'll do my best to go through it as quickly as we can. But I think there are just too many things in this passage as I looked and studied and thought, well, can I skip something and just focus on this? I just kept coming back with, no, I don't want to skip that. I don't want to skip that. And so we're going to cover it all, and hopefully it makes sense. But the topic tonight is the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus, and you see that in verse 22. It says right in the middle of the verse, as one who had authority. And so we're going to look at five things that describe the authority, or another word I'm going to use in place of authority, power. Okay? I thought it might be better to have five points instead of nine. Okay? So we're going to spell out power. Okay? And we're going to start with a letter P. Wow, man. Way to go. All those years of high school, junior high, paid off. Way to go, Matthew. Yeah, we're going to start with the word P. But when you think of power or authority, what comes to your mind? Somebody. What comes to your mind when you hear power or authority? A king. Okay? Because we live in a country that has a... Oh. No, but you're right. We, we do have, Kings are powerful, okay? And if you study more ancient history, you see how they demonstrate their power over their subjects. So that's, that's exactly right. Good job, Glennon. I'm just picking on you. Okay? What else? Somebody else have an idea of what, what you might think of when you hear power? Yeah, my son, Zach. Go ahead. Parents. Parents. How did, you, how did you know this is where I was going? See, this is like jeans right here. He did not even see my notes. Actually, he's written this whole message. I'm just up here delivering it. So, um, No, he did not see my notes, but that's exactly what I thought of. When I thought of power, I thought of my dad. Okay? 
See, when I was growing up, my dad was also my principal. Yeah, everybody has the same reaction every time I say that because you're like, oh man. So you get it at home and then you go to school and you get it there too if you're not behaving right. And as a young kid and teenager, there were times I wish I didn't have to admit many too, time, too many times where I wasn't doing what I should. And my dad had this and still does has this ability with his eyes to like look through your soul. Like I have a nickname for it. It's called the stink eye. You know what I mean? Maybe your parents have this power too, where they don't have to say anything to you. And they kind of give you this look and you're like, because mm. you know you're doing something wrong and you're going to hear about it later. Right? So when I think of authority, that's what I think of. I think of my dad who's just like always with me everywhere I went. And he was the authority figure. Okay? And thankfully he loved the Lord and he helped me get to where I am today. So I'm not against that. It's just what comes to my mind. But let me challenge you in this. That as we jump into this passage tonight, don't take any kind of preconceived ideas of what you think power is. Because I think Jesus is going to change what we think about it. And so I don't want to think that we've assumed that we understand what power is because Jesus is, like he does with everything, going to transform our thinking. And so five points of power. Here's the first one. Powerful teaching. Powerful teaching. Let's read verses 21 through 22. And they went into Capernaum and immediately, by the way, this is Mark's favorite word. He says immediately all the time. So I thought it'd be cool. As we read it, if you see the word immediately, just say it. Okay, so let's practice. As they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Who's he? Jesus. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So right away we see Jesus teaching has power. It has authority. Jesus is on mission to declare the kingdom of God is here and for people to repent and believe. I've already referred to that back in verse 15 of the same chapter. And so he's in the synagogue, basically their church, on their church day, teaching, but the people's reaction is way different to his teaching than it is to the normal professional teachers, the scribes. What does it say? It says, he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Which is sad. If the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, those who were given the task of preaching God's word every week had lost the power? It wasn't because God's word had lost power, but because they had lost God's word. Their preaching became of stories and tradition and opinion and debate and less focus on what God had to say. So they had lost focus on God's word. 
But what I want to see tonight, in every point I have, I have a for me section. And so when we get to that spot, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write, if you're taking notes, for me. And then I'm going to give you a point that matches up with what we've learned about Jesus. Make sense? So we're talking about powerful teaching. And what does this mean for me, for you and me? It means we should have a personal response. A personal response. These people were astonished by Jesus' teaching. And it wasn't because he had cool stories. It wasn't because he didn't say um too much. It was because of the content of what he was saying. It had power. And it, it asked for a response. You should be gripped by Jesus' teaching, by God's word. Do you respond personally when you hear God's word? Or is it just like, huh, that's cool. And you're on to the next thing. We have the privilege at this church to be able to sit under teaching that's awesome. Whether it's Matthew or Daniel or Gabe or Pastor John or any of the other pastors in this church, we get to sit under God's word. That is a huge blessing. But here's the thing. If you're not going into it ready to be gripped and changed by what you hear, then you're not doing what you should be doing. And actually, you'll fall under judgment if not changed by God's word and ready to hear from it. So the first thing we see is Jesus had powerful teaching. Our personal response is what we should have. Here's the second thing. We see in the text, he had overpowering the enemy. Overpowering the enemy. Let's look at verse 23. And immediately there was... In their synagogue, oh wait, we missed it, and, thank you, sorry, told you it was in there a lot. There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. <laughs> and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands, and even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So we see here that Jesus was able to overpower the enemy. You see, preaching anchored in the truth of God's word disrupts the norm. Preaching anchored in the truth of God's word disrupts the norm because what is the norm? The norm is sin. That's what we're born into and that's what this world operates under. Our own God being our own person following our own rules. But when we come under the truth of God, it disrupts that kind of thinking. It's curious to me that the enemy of Jesus 
knows who Jesus is before anybody else does in Mark. You notice that? The disciples don't understand who Jesus is. In fact, it takes them a long, long time to understand who Jesus is. The Pharisees, they can't figure it out. They want to kill him one second and then hide him in the next and listen to him sometimes and debate with him. They're not sure. But there's one person who clearly knew who Jesus was. That was the enemy. It's also curious to me that this guy was probably attending this synagogue regularly with a demon. And because the scribe's teaching wasn't authoritative or based on God's word, he didn't have any problem hanging out there. He wasn't bothered by it. But immediately, Mark's favorite word, as Jesus starts to talk, <laughs> he freaks out. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we just don't see this a lot. Like, Tessa, have you seen a demon like today? No. No. And if, if, if someone did, we would be like, Scott, shut up. We want to listen to this. Right? Because we just aren't, we don't understand that. That world is not a part of what we see. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that the enemy isn't working in places we just don't know about. And so it's important to realize that this enemy, once he realizes who Jesus is, which is immediately, what does he do? He's like, ah, I'll just sit back. Things, things will be fine. Is that what he says? Well, what's he do? He immediately does something. Very good. Good job paying attention. He panics. Yeah, who are you? And what do you have to do with me? Leave me alone. I wasn't bothering you. He freaks out because he knows what's coming. And what is coming? Hey, Gino, pay attention, okay? Focus, if you can do it. He knows his defeat is coming. That's exactly right. He's about to lose his house, which is the guy. He's about to be cast out of this man because guess what? Jesus says, get out of him. Get out of him. And guess what the enemy has to do? Is there a debate here? Well, actually, Jesus, I'm going to hold a finger behind my back. If it's three, I'm going to stay. If it's anything else, I'll go. Does that happen? No. No, immediately, the enemy has to flee. First John talks about this, that the light shines in darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. You ever put a flashlight in a dark room? That works? Okay. If you use one that doesn't work, the illustration falls apart. Okay? But if it's working, what happens to the darkness? Has it ever not gone away if the flashlight's working? Have you ever turned on a bright light and thought, whoa, the darkness is running back into my flashlight? Does that happen? No, never. And that's true of God and the enemy. When Jesus shows up, they have to flee. Every time, you could do a study on this, and every time a demon shows up, Jesus says, get out, guess what they do? There's a really cool one about them going into pigs and jumping off a cliff. It happens every time, because the enemy has to obey. Has to obey. Jesus, or God promises it in Genesis, that one day he will crush the enemy forever. And this is just a little victory to the ultimate victory. 
But let me ask you this. If the enemy has to obey, why don't we obey? I thought to myself as I was reading that, the enemy of God has to obey. Yet here I am sometimes struggling to do what's right. Why is that? Couldn't God just have made us to obey? Just, just make us obey. We'll obey and, and everything will be all right. You'll get glory. We'll do the right thing. Everybody wins. You see, the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So one day everybody will be made to obey. But here's the really cool thing. God wants us to trust and obey. To obey because in obeying him, he gets more glory and we receive more joy. If we obeyed like robots, there's no joy in that. There's no satisfaction. But in truly following after God and obeying him, there's where the joy is. There's where he fills us. And that's where he is made to look as awesome as he is when your life is filled with everything you need because you're looking to him. Jesus overpowers the enemy. What does this mean for me? I need to obey the master. I need to obey the master. Do I obey the voice of the Lord and the Holy Spirit? All will one day obey him. So we've talked about powerful teaching, overpowering the enemy. Here's the W. Wholehearted compassion. Wholehearted compassion. Let's look at verse 29. You guys ready? You got a part to play here. And immediately. Very good. Immediately he left the synagogue entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And then just, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately, how do I forget that? Like I, okay, very good, you were there, good job. And immediately, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her. And then if you drop down to verse 32, that evening, sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. It's easy to kind of miss what's happening here if you're not careful. Miracles are amazing. And it's another thing that we don't see a lot. I believe they still do happen, but I, I don't believe they happen a lot. And I don't know why that is exactly. So when we see a miracle in the Bible, we get really drawn to it because it's something that we don't see. And so it, it draws a lot of our attention. But sometimes I think because it's so cool, we get focused on the actual 
miracle instead of what it's teaching or conveying. And the thing, it, it conveys a lot of things, but one of the things it conveys is the awesome compassion of Jesus. You think about this. We know from, from the text and different verses that when Jesus performed miracles, he got tired. Now, that sounds funny that God got tired. I thought God was all powerful. He doesn't. Yes, but in Jesus' human form, he felt human things. And so he would get worn out. There's a story where Jesus' robe gets touched. And do you remember what Jesus says? Who touched me? Yeah, and, and he, he wasn't even touched, just his garment. But he felt, what? Power go out from him. That tells me that he, he, he had transactions coming out of him. There were things that he was giving to people. So it wasn't like he could just, he could have, he could have just been like this, the whole room was sick, bam, you're healed, way to go, healed, bam, here we go, healed, healed, good to go, see ya. Could he have done that? He surely could have. But is that what we see here? No, look, verse, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, hopefully he got along with her okay. Jesus, verse 31, here's he, she has a fever. How many of you like to have fevers? You guys like to have fevers? Uh, okay. let's, pretend to, then let's pretend the next day is your birthday. Do you love to have fevers? Thank you. In the right context, I can get the right answer. Okay? Yeah, nobody wants to have a fever unless you, can't, unless you don't have to go to school. Then everybody does. I get it. So, but in the context of not wanting to feel lousy, nobody likes a fever. It's like one of the worst feelings because it usually leads to other things that are worse, like puking. Okay? Sorry to put that image in your head. But anyway, you're all okay. Nobody's sick. Don't even think about it. Okay. So she has a fever. Nobody likes this. And the worst part is that she was ready to have kind of like a party. She's ready to have her son-in-law over and some of the other disciples and Jesus and after the church synagogue meeting, they're going to come over afterwards and have a great time hanging out together and talking about the things of the Lord, and she has a fever. Jesus could have done all kinds of different things. He could have said, well, I hope she feels better. Right? And that necessarily wouldn't have been, like, wrong. He could have genuinely cared for her and just decided that he wasn't going to heal her. But that's not what he did. He could have also just from like downstairs been like, bam, healed. Come on down. I know you're better. Quit faking. Right? He could have done that. But he didn't. What did he do? He went up to her. He took her by the hand. And he raised her up. And healed her by his touch. It doesn't seem significant, but it is. Because it's teaching us the amazing compassion of Jesus who reaches out to everyone with his touch and heals people. His healing shows power, but the motivation is out of love and compassion. You know, in the Gospels, there's 
the same story repeated by different books? Do you know that? It's called the Synoptic Gospels. It just means that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are a lot of similarities between these three books because they're written from three different perspectives. John kind of did his own thing, but in Matthew, this ver the version of this story has some other details. And Matthew shares that this was to fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah 53, where it says that Jesus, doesn't say his name, but it's prophesying that someone someday would heal people from his sacrifice. And in this, it's being fulfilled. That Jesus is healing people's diseases. He's having compassion on them. And so Mark and Matthew, they're saying that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the coming Messiah. It shows that miracles point to an even greater purpose. And that purpose is to bring us back to where we should be. That's what Isaiah 53 and 54 and 55 are all about, is that we are separated from God and we need a solution. And the reason we're separated is because sin has separated us. It's seared us. It's scarred us. And that's what sickness and suffering is. It's a result of sin that shows us our great need for something better. That separation is evident in suffering and sickness. You know that. You can't be in a, a room this size with this many people that you haven't experienced sickness somehow in your family. Right? And it's no fun. But miracles show Jesus came to make all of that right. He has made wrong, he has made right what was made wrong in sin. John 3.17, John 3.16's big brother, talks about how Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that what? Yeah, to summarize it, to save it. That all who believe in him might be saved. So what does this mean for me? Jesus' wholehearted compassion. What does it mean for me? We should be wowed by his love and acceptance. Be wowed by his love and acceptance. Having an accurate view of Jesus. He's not the condemning eye, the stink eye that I was talking about. I think so many of us have that picture of Jesus. He's just waiting for the next time to catch me do something wrong and be like, remember the cross, come on, man, get over it. But that's not Jesus. He's never condemning us. He's always showing compassion, love, forgiveness. Matthew talks about that next week. And so that is the accurate picture we should have of Jesus. Full of love, acceptance for those that come to him. So we've talked about powerful teaching, overpowering the enemy, wholehearted compassion, 
Here's our E, emptying himself. Emptying himself. You could write humility. It doesn't start with an E, so I had to use something else. Humility. He empties himself. Look at verses 29, 35, and 38. Verse 25. Or sorry, 29. And immediately he left the synagogue. Right? Way to go. Three of you. Way to go. We should have played this in elimination round. And whoever forgot to say it gets eliminated. Anyway, I don't have time. Maybe we should start over. Daniel, we're going to start over. And No, never mind. Nobody wants to do that. Okay. So why is this verse important? Why, does that, why do we care that immediately he left the synagogue? Why do we care about that? Well, we'll look up in the previous verse. Remember, Daniel had a great word for us preachers this Sunday that when we read God's word, we have to read it vertically. It just means what comes before it, what comes after it. And so if you do that in this verse, well, okay, so what's the big deal about he left the synagogue? Well, we'll look at the verse before. Right after he throws out the demon out of the guy and he screams and everybody's like, did that just happen? Well, word spread all around, right? Like everybody got on their phone. They got on Twitter and said, come to the synagogue now. A demon just screamed. It's crazy, right? Okay, so maybe they didn't have that. But it still happened because look at verse 28. And at once, what? His fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region. Oh, I'm getting excited here. Put this down a little bit. His fame spread throughout the entire region. Now, if Jesus was about himself, getting crowds, getting people to like him, getting likes, to put it another way, what would he have done? I think he would have stayed and done more miracles and cast out more demons and waited for more people to show up because everybody was all about what was going on. But what did he do instead? He left. I'm done. I'm out of here. Even told the demon, be quiet. Look in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out into a desolate place. To do what? Pray. To pray. You see, even though Jesus was God incarnate, he was not on earth to, for people to show him and, and applaud him and build crowds around him. No, Mark 10.45 says, the Son of Man came. Why? He had to be a servant. We'll talk about that in just a second. You see, Jesus left. Even in verse 38, after he healed more people, when the disciples finally found him in verse 38 while he was praying, you know what they said to him right away? Hey, come back to us. We can get a whole line of people and just keep doing this all day long. Just crowds and crowds of people. But what did Jesus say? No. Let's go on to the next town. That I may preach there also. 
For that is why I came. He didn't get hung up on crowds and popularity. He was about the mission that God had called him to. Mark 10, 45 says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 5 and 8 says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, it just shows you what Jesus did when he came and emptied himself and was humble. Popularity and greatness wasn't his goal. What does this mean for me? We should be empowered to imitate. Empowered to imitate him. And I love this passage because there's a specific example of this in action Back in verse 31, right after Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, verse 31, and he came up, took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she laid back down and rested. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? She got up and started serving. <laughs> she got up and started serving people. First of all, that sounds like moms. Okay? Shout out to moms. But, but nobody in here, like, oh, I'm feeling better. I think I'll serve everyone now. I don't think it was just a natural response for her. I think this was a supernatural response because of what Jesus had just done in her life. She, she saw the great servant humil humility example of Jesus and said, I'm going to do that too. Because when you've been changed by Jesus, he puts us back to what we were created to do, which is to be with him and serve him. Follow his example. He emptied himself. We should be empowered to imitate. All right, so that's P-O-W-E. We made it to R. Hey, hang with me just a little bit more. The fifth and last point is rescuing sinners. Rescuing sinners. Verses 40 through 45. And a leper came to him. And I have to stop right there. A leper came to him. We need to understand this whole leprosy thing because it can just be so foreign to us that it doesn't make much sense. Does anybody know, anybody know anything about leprosy from the Bible? Okay. Now, leprosy has is, is, is kind of been maybe misunderstood a little from the standpoint that there are a lot of diseases in the Bible called leprosy. And so it's hard to know exactly what they mean when they say leprosy. But we do know that some forms, your fingers would fall off. You would get numbness in your body and you would, because you got numb, your flesh, the blood flow wasn't there, it would then start to 
fall off. In fact, I read a thing when I was studying that said back in the old days when somebody had leprosy and they went to the doctor, do you know what the doctor would give them? This is really gross and I'm sorry, but I'm going to share it anyway. The doctor would give them a cat. You know why? Be prepared. So that when they lay down at night, the mice would not chew their flesh because they couldn't feel it. They were numb. Now that's gross. But it helps us understand and illustrate how severe leprosy could be. But more than just the severity of the disease, it was looked at by Jewish law, listen, listen, as being unclean. Meaning that you could not be with God or people because if you had leprosy, you were unclean. Don't believe me? Go to Leviticus 13. Let's all turn there. Leviticus 13. And there are chapters, chapters of information about leprosy and what you have to do, what the priest would have to do if someone had leprosy. I want to concentrate on verses 45 and 46 of chapter 13. Here we go. Don't worry, there's no immediately. And the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of their head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And by the way, leprosy wasn't curable. So when it says that they were unclean until they didn't have the disease, guess what? Like, they were going to have the disease. Unless God cured them, that was something that would be with them forever. And it would follow them everywhere they went. Can you imagine if you had this disease? First of all, you'd be alone. How many of you enjoyed COVID? Okay, there's five of you. Okay, great. Most of us hated it, right? Why? That's right. You, you couldn't be with people. Everybody thought, oh, we'll just do it on a computer. It'll be the same. And then you got on it for three seconds and thought, this is awful. <laughs> right? And we learned really quickly. Like for the first couple of weeks, we thought, oh, this is kind of cool. Like a mini vacation. All right. We thought that. And then really, we all of a sudden realized, no, this is awful because I'm alone. And maybe you're with family. Maybe that was worse. I don't know. But like it was bad being separated from everyone else. Yet this is exactly the life, the sin of a leper. Alone. All the time. And then you had to proclaim to everyone, everywhere, all the time, that you had this disease. You ever been like, maybe you have like a little rash on your arm and you're kind of like, all right, I'm just going to pull my sleeve down so nobody sees that. 
right? And, and that's kind of a natural reaction. You don't want people to know like you have something. Maybe you have a little cold, but you're going to come to church anyway, but you don't want everybody to freak out. Okay, so you don't tell anybody you're... And you're just going to be quiet and try not to sneeze. Well, imagine if you had leprosy and everywhere you went, you had to go, unclean, unclean, unclean. At first it sounds funny. But then think about that for a second. Every place you went, you're basically telling people, I'm disgusting. I'm rotting away. I'm dying and alone. Would that be fun? It would be awful. It'd be the worst thing you could ever have. So that's the background as we finish this story. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling. He said to him, If you will, You can make me clean and move with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately, good job, the leprosy left him and he was made so this is the thing, cool thing, Tully, and we're almost done. It's even interesting in Jesus' response to the leper. Because remember, leprosy was thought to be so contagious that you couldn't get near it. And so another account of this story mentions a large crowd. It doesn't here in Mark, but in another account it does. It says there was a large crowd. What do you think their reaction was as a man started to run toward them yelling, unclean, unclean? What do you think they did? Ran like crazy. But I bet any money they ran like crazy from a distance and then watched. And they wanted to see, what would Jesus do? And Jesus, I'm sorry, I get emotional because this is just so awesome. Jesus goes to him. And he could have been far away, right? He could have said, oh, yeah, you got leprosy. Be clean. Get, get out of here. But he doesn't. What does he do? He touches him. Which, in a sense, was telling everyone who's watching Oh my goodness, Jesus is going to get leprosy. He was saying, I will take your disease. I will touch your disease and take that upon myself so that you can instead be clean and walk away. That's the truth of the gospel. Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, in that moment, Jesus was showing everyone that he was here to save sinners and to bring them to God, to himself. 
And so Tully, just like you said, he went from saying unclean, unclean, unclean to everyone he came in contact, and guess what he was saying? I'm clean! And I bet he told every single person that he had just told unclean, I'm clean now, because he had been changed by Jesus. So what does this mean for us? It means the exact same thing. We need to be rescued from our sin. We need to be rescued sinners. We are dead, alone, and separated because of our sin. It says that in Ephesians 2.5. That's our condition, every single one of us. Until we trust in Jesus, we are dead, alone, and separated from God. But the good news, just like with the leper, Jesus comes to us. Not after we get it all together, not after we figure some things out, but when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, Romans 5, 8, Jesus comes to us. And then what does he do? He touches us. And he takes our disease, our sin, upon his shoulders. And he gives us his clean robes of righteousness. His cleanliness. His rightful standing before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says... He made him to be no, who had no sin, to know no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you don't get anything else tonight, understand what Jesus has done. Displayed in the picture of healing the leper, he takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness so that we can be reunited with him. Forever. Let's pray.